0: Welcome to the Motherhood Reimagined Podcast, where we celebrate all paths to motherhood. I'm your host, Sarah Kowalski. Whether you're contemplating becoming a single mother, trying to be one, or already raising kids, this is the place for inspirational stories, expert advice, and informative guides celebrating those who didn't follow the rules as they share the heartache and joys of their paths. Be informed, be inspired, because you do not need to feel alone. Hello and welcome to today's show. A couple of announcements before we get started. If you haven't already, please subscribe and leave a review for the show. You can do that in iTunes or Stitcher or anywhere you listen to podcasts. It really helps me get the word out and keep this project running, so I'd really appreciate it. And finally, stick around at the end of the show, please. I have lots of announcements about Tribe. I want to give you a really detailed picture of what's involved and give you the coupon code so you can sign up before the price goes up. Now let's get started. So I'm joined today by Tammy. Hi, Tammy. Thanks for joining me today.
1: No, this is fun. I'm excited.
0: Yay. So, I always start out by asking people as a child, what did you envision for your life?
1: I really drank the Kool Aid. I thought I'd get married, have 2.5 kids. My parents were actually high school sweethearts, and they always told me that I'd probably meet my partner in college. And so, I just thought that I'd meet him. And then I stayed in college for a long time and didn't, Mm -hmm. and went on to grad school and still didn't meet anybody. And for me, uncoupling the idea of having a child from having a partner was just not even something that I could
0: really consider. Interesting. And so can you briefly describe how you did come to motherhood and how that uncoupling eventually happened? Yeah. So basically when I was about 37 or
1: 38, now I'm 49 now with the two and a half year old to just put this in a timeline context. So mm-hmm. when I was 37 or 38, that was about 10, 12 years ago. And I went to, there's a couple of really good fertility clinics. I'm actually in Denver, Colorado. And I went to one of them and talked a little bit at the time about IUI and, you know, could I do this? I honestly can't remember if egg freezing was even really a thing at that point that they suggested. So 37, 38, looking into sperm donation and IUI. And I just, I freaked out. I'd had, like I said, I kept going to school. So I'd been to graduate school looking for my husband and plenty of student loan debt. At 37 or 38, I was really just starting to feel like I was financially secure enough to take care of myself. And I wanted to have children, but I didn't feel like I could do that on my own. So, after a couple of appointments and talking to them, I decided to just double down on dating and really actively pursue trying to meet a partner. So, then what happened was, you know, fast forward six or seven years, and that was not successful. On my 45th birthday, I was having dinner with a girlfriend, and we got champagne and toasted to my birthday, and I just burst into tears. And she's like, what's wrong? And I was like, my window, it's shut. I'm never going to be a mom. And I was so crushed. Fortunately for me, this particular girlfriend had actually been undergoing fertility treatment for a while. And she was like, Tammy, things have changed even in the last seven or eight years. Why don't you just go to the doctor, run some tests, and find out what the situation is? And so that kind of opened my eyes to the idea that maybe the window wasn't closed and that's ultimately what happened was I went to, I was at the doctor within like a week or two and started the journey.
0: Interesting. So I'm curious back when you were like 37 38 what even sort of prompted you to go to the doctor at that point were you thinking that you might do it alone or were you just sort of Like, oh, I should probably check and see what's happening.
1: That's a great question. I'm not sure I remember. I guess I was probably thinking about doing it on my own, but honestly, I was so scared of the finance. I was really scared of, you know, I had been in California for grad school from when I was 27 to 30, and then I had lived in Colorado through my 30s, and both of those places have pretty high costs of living. And I wanted to own a home. And I just felt like financially doing it on my own was prohibitive. And I'd also always struggled through most of my adulthood with student loan debt, which made me think that I was a lot more vulnerable than I maybe was.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Cool. Okay. So then tell us some more details about when you ended up going back at 45. How did your path to motherhood evolve from there?
1: So what's funny about that is the perspective from 37 of like, oh, I still have time. This is kind of expensive to 45. To literally feeling like, I mean, every birthday that would come around was painful to me because I would think, oh good, another year's gone by and here I am still single and I don't have a baby. Mm -hmm. And I also felt a little weird because as a professional woman living in our time, saying, I really want a baby even sounded a little bit weird and archaic, but I really did. It was the one thing that I physically felt the need for in a way that I felt nothing else in life. Mm -hmm. So at 45, I really thought like, oh crap, my time is over. So when I went to the doctor and they started, I remember the first doctor I saw actually said, look, I can take a 50-year-old woman in menopause and get her pregnant. And I was like, wow, okay. (laughs) You know, we know now that ultimately, yeah, that could cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. So when I originally started, we were just running the basic tests. And I don't remember what all the tests are, but they start out, you know, checking your egg quality, checking your cycle. Are you still ovulating? Are you doing all this? And when you're doing sperm donation, you have to go see a psychiatrist who, you know, for your FDA clearance that you can use donor damage. And so as part of that conversation, we discussed the idea, well, what if what if your eggs aren't good and you have to use donor eggs? And at that point, I was just like, I just want a baby. I don't care how I get this baby. I don't care necessarily if it's mine. I wanted to carry my own baby for some bizarre reason. I'd always been kind of obsessed with pregnancy and thought it was like this magical experience. And my pregnancy was not. (laughs) But So the idea that that technology even existed was kind of amazing to me. And that's ultimately the path that we ended up going down was my eggs were meh. My doctor was totally fine with trying IVF with my own eggs. But I was sitting there looking at my dollar amount and thinking, okay, I have this much money. And how can I use it? All I really wanted was a baby. And one of the things that I had to kind of work through was adoption. You know, a lot of people were like, oh, well, you know, why didn't you really consider that? I did, but I also had some friends who were coupled who were going through adoption And I was under the impression that it was very difficult for a single mother to adopt. And I know you've explored that with some on your podcast that have adopted. And it actually sounds like there's a little bit more opportunity out there than I even thought. I was not sure that I would be able to adopt. And based on the stats that my doctor was giving me, it sounded like I was in a position to be able to carry a baby using donor eggs. And that's what we tried.
0: Awesome. Okay. And can you talk a little bit about how you chose the sperm and the egg donor? And if there was any, like, if it felt different to you to choose the egg and the sperm donor?
1: You know, it did a little bit. Choosing the sperm donor felt a lot like online dating. And I think it just has to do with the interface. Because, you know, I came of age in the like match.com eHarmony timeframe when you actually got on the computer and looked at profiles. And I don't know if <laughs> sperm donations getting to a swiping point, but back then <laughs> the interfaces felt very similar. You know, you pulled up pictures, it was descriptions. It felt a lot like match.com at the time. So the sperm, my thought was I wanted somebody that looked like somebody I would be. My thought was is that eventually if I ever did get married or something, I wanted him to resemble my future partner, my future potential partner. So I was looking at the health history just because it's there and you might as well consider that. But height, coloring, I sort of have a type and he, that donor kind of fit that type. But I also filled in some things that I didn't have. So like he's a lot more musical than I am. I'm somewhat athletic, but this guy was actually a college level athlete. And he sounded like a really kind person, and that was something else that it was more ethereal. But as I settled on that particular donor, it was because he sounded really kind. I could hear his voice. But the bank that I used actually allowed you to hear audio, and I, I really was drawn to his voice. And he also sounded like he had a sense of humor. <laughs> On the egg donor, I wanted a woman that resembled me and I'm ten. And so the options that I had in my height were, I'm also my family background, like I'm white, but my family is like Italian. So we don't burn very easily. And <laughs> so the one woman that I could find that was tall was really fair, complexed. And I was like, Oh my gosh, if I get a baby, that's really fair. I'm going to burn it because I'm not going to know how to make sure that it's not burnt. <laughs> so, (laughs) I was struggling to find somebody. Interestingly enough, at the time, I actually met another SMC in sort of a roundabout way, but she was pregnant and she had gone to Panama donor clinic in Panama. And so she connected me with the clinic while I was in a searching for the egg process And the nurse down there sent me a couple of profiles and one of them looked like my niece. And so that's who I went with. And so my donor actually really did resemble me and my family.
0: Oh, interesting. So You ended up going abroad for the egg. I did. Cool. So can you talk a little bit about... So you were at a fertility clinic in Colorado and then sort of shifted and ended up going to Panama. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about and what your experience was like in Panama?
1: I've traveled a ton. So I traveled a bunch for work. I've lived internationally before. So for me... The idea of going somewhere to do something like this wasn't really any different than a business trip or a vacation or something like that. I know a lot of my friends and family thought it was really strange that I wanted to go overseas (laughs) to do this. But to me, it was really just about finding the right ingredients for my baby. And then there was also some cost savings. I don't know what the situation is now. But it was probably 40 to 50% of the cost of what the same procedures would be in the US. So we did, like I said, we did all the tests. We jumped right to donor IVF and did a fresh cycle where we had a doctor in Denver that oversaw my care. And then when it was time to do the egg retrieval from the other donor, we timed that up with my first cycle. So my first try was actually a fresh cycle. That wasn't successful. And then I went back for a second round of IVF about two months later with frozen embryos.
0: And that's what worked. So you said a second round of IVF. Did the egg donor have to go through a second cycle or do you mean that they just froze an embryo from her?
1: Yeah. Yeah. She had, um, I can't remember the exact numbers now, but she had produced something like nine or 10 eggs. And we ultimately ended up with nine or 10 embryos. And so the first one we were synced, but she didn't go through another round with me. I was just still working with the frozen embryos.
0: Okay. So not technically a cycle of IVF, just you getting your like uterus prepared for a frozen embryo transfer. Yes, exactly. It wasn't a second
1: round of IVF.
0: That's correct. Cool. I feel like one of the big issues when women want to go abroad, and I know I experienced this, was sort of this dance of how do you find a doctor in the U.S. that will kind of oversee your care, maybe, you know, do whatever scans you need to make sure your lining's thickening, prescribe the estrogen and other things that you need. How did you navigate that with your doctor? I'm assuming it's a doctor still that was at that same fertility clinic?
1: No. So what happened was I had met another SMC here who had already used the doctor in Panama and developed a relationship with a doctor here. So he wasn't with my original facility clinic. He was actually just a regular OB. I don't know his actual background, but he was fluent in Spanish and didn't have any problem communicating between the two clinics. And so... I fortunately didn't have to figure that all out. They had already done that twice with this other SMC who was pregnant.
0: Okay, good to know. I ended up using my OBGYN as well, who was willing to kind of liaise and she just made me show her the protocol and she sort of signed off on it and was willing to prescribe the drugs. But I think it's, you know, it's, it's, that's part of the dance is like, how do you get someone to do what you need in the US so that you can go abroad for just kind of just to show up for the transfer? So I just like to cover that.
1: No, and I think that's a really good point because one of the things that I noticed after going through this process is you end up meeting other people. And even within the U S the protocol can vary from clinic to clinic or geography to geography. Mm -hmm. And so luckily for me, similar to you, my doctor in the U S was similar in protocol and procedure to the doctor in Panama. So they didn't have trouble, but I could imagine some people having a challenge with that if the one clinic didn't agree with the protocol in the other clinic.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Yeah. And so were you able to ship your sperm from a, a sperm bank in the US to Panama or did you use a sperm bank in Panama?
1: No, I used California Cryobank and they were able to ship it. And I don't remember the details now. I know there were some issues with customs and I was a little bit nervous at the time. It had something to do with communication, but it did all end up working out. And they have in those containers, they ship them in, you have, you know, they can be in there for days and be safe. And so they were able to uh, get them down to the clinic in Panama, no problem.
0: Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about the experience with the clinic in Panama? Yeah, it was, it was honestly, it was, it was wonderful. The nurse
1: Cindy is Panamanian and American. So she but she was really the only one at the clinic that spoke fluent English. And so, and I at the time didn't speak any Spanish. And so you know, it was a nice clinic when in you know, all clinics feel the same. Like there's all these pictures of babies everywhere. You see all these parents that are in you know on this emotional roller coaster journey together. <laughs> there were no differences from that perspective. But it was a little weird, you know, going into a room and, you know, taking all your clothes off and putting on the gown and going through the procedure with nobody speaking anything but some some broken English. Like I said, for me, because I've, I've traveled a bunch, I was so focused on the end product of this. Mm-hmm. You could have sent me to another planet to have a baby and I would have been fine. <laughs> but it was it was a really, I mean, it was a pleasant experience. And I think the people that do this professionally, they're pretty kind about the whole thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nice. So you got pregnant on your second transfer. Yep. Cool. You referenced having a difficult pregnancy. Do you mind talking about that a little bit?
1: No, not at all. And I was really surprised when I got pregnant. I was 46 when Sebastian was born and I was diagnosed with just, diabetes. I ended up having hypertension throughout the pregnancy. I ultimately had preeclampsia and had to deliver him six weeks early. Mm. By some miracle, the University of Colorado did not require me to have a C-section. So, Mm. but it was a, you know, two-day labor And I was on the magnesium. He was in the NICU for two weeks, and you'd never know it to see him now. He's two and a half and he looks like a four year old, but (laughs) it was definitely a challenging pregnancy. I was back and forth at the doctor's office multiple times a week for scans, and it just wasn't fun. Like I always imagined pregnancy to be this sort of blissful, oh, I can feel my baby. One thing I didn't know is if the placenta implants in the front, you don't really feel the baby kicking. So Mm -hmm. I very rarely felt any movement of him. I was sick and exhausted the whole time. And then the 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 way it ended you know the trauma of six weeks early and and being induced and then like even so one of the things i'd always seen was pictures of people holding their babies you know after they're born you always see these pictures of the mom and the baby's wrapped in those little blankets with feet on it and they're all happy and Mm -hmm. we didn't have that because he was so early they had to take him and like intubate him and, and do all this stuff to him and i had to sit in this room for like an hour or two before I could go to him. And that was, that was really challenging. Mm. And then it was funny. There was this picture that somebody had snapped in the delivery room of him. And it was the only picture I had. And it was basically him being taken from me and put on this gurney. And I'm reaching out to him. And I don't know, it's not really like gurney. It's like the little baby thing. But I'm reaching out to him, and that picture to me just symbolized them taking my baby away. So even now, when I look at the pictures of of the birth, I'm like, there's a part of me at the gut punch.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you end up having any postpartum depression, or how was once you kind of got him home and did things normalize, or how was the rest of your sort of newborn phase?
1: So actually, no, it was really strange because, you know, being a single mom and knowing that I was going to be coming home by myself with a baby, I had, I thought I had put a really good support system in place. I had friends that were ready to do the meal train. I had, my doula was talking about being a postpartum doula. So we had talked about hiring her to come over And it all kind of fell apart because he was in the hospital for two weeks. So Mm -hmm. people kept trying to bring me food, but I didn't really want food because I wasn't at my house to eat the food. Another thing that was really strange was I didn't realize how physically I would ache to be near him. So Mm -hmm. I would go home from the NICU and I would go to sleep because I was exhausted. And then I'd wake up around two or three in the morning and I just didn't feel right because my baby wasn't in the same place as me. And so, you know, those first couple of days, I couldn't drive myself to and from the hospital. So I had to wait for somebody to come get me to take me. And so none of my friends really knew what to do. I knew that my mom wouldn't be able to be there. And so I had two friends that had planned to take time off of work and each one of them was gonna come stay with me for like a week, week and a half or two weeks. But because he came six weeks early, no one was able to do that. So it was kind of a weird thing. On the one hand, being in the NICU turned out to be a tremendous blessing because I had all of the support for those first two weeks. It took me four or five days before my milk came in because of the magnesium and the trauma of everything. But because he was in the hospital, he was able to get donor milk. I had like patient consultants. We were able to get that whole piece figured out. And I know that if we'd been at home, I don't think I would have had that kind of success. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I was even uncomfortable, like changing the diaper and figuring out how to do this stuff because it was this tiny baby. And so I really think, (laughs) I need to say it, you hate leaving your kid in the hospital, but honestly, having him in the hospital for two weeks, in some ways, was the best thing that happened to us. Because by the time I brought him home, and you were in Colorado, so high altitude, he came home on oxygen. Mm. But I wasn't scared by that point, you know, I knew how to handle all this stuff. And so that was good. And then things never really did normalize. I did have some postpartum depression, but I didn't recognize it. My emotions were kind of ramped up. I was also exhausted. But since he was a preemie, you know, he was eating like every two and a half, three hours. I don't think he slept six hours until he was like four or five months old. And I just really didn't have I did end up hiring my mom and my good friend that had wanted to come hired a postpartum doula to come and spend, I think it was like one night a week for about six weeks that I had her come over. And I tell women now getting a postpartum doula is hands down the best thing that you can do for yourself because she would come in, she'd put me to bed I would wake up at some point and pump, but she would give him a bottle. And it was the only time that I got a stretch of, you know, the closest thing to uninterrupted sleep.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds intense. Yes, I can imagine having your own health issues once your baby's born and having a little tiny, fragile baby sounds really hard, but... I yeah also totally agree with having a postpartum doula or some sort of help. I know one friend who set up a meal train and had her friends coming once or twice a week for several months so she could get a full night's sleep. So sometimes, you know, sometimes maybe you have that support system where you can create that. I don't think that I could have asked any of my friends really to stay overnight in the beginning, but it's, it's worth asking, I think, or getting the doula to do it because I think, yeah, when you're having weeks upon weeks upon weeks of not really sleeping, it can definitely take a toll.
1: Absolutely. And that's actually one thing I really would like to to point out. Part of my experience in this journey and a lot of things that SNCs talk about is you need to learn to ask for help. You need to learn to ask for help. I always took that phrase as meaning like, oh, you think you're so good and capable that you don't need help. And what I've learned through this journey is it has nothing to do with that. I'm not a particularly proud person in my work environment when I have to delegate or ask for help. I never have challenges with that. But what I found to be the challenge, and you kind of just hit on it just now, is you don't even necessarily know what you need. For me, it's been a bandwidth issue. You know, you're sitting there and you've got this needy kid in front of you, and you're taking care of that. And you're like, okay, now I need to eat, now I need to sleep, now I need to do this. The ability to actually step back from what you're doing to define what you need to clearly articulate that to people, I have found that to be a complete challenge even today. And so mm-hmm. that's one of the things that when you talk about, you know, the journey is you don't even know till you're in it what you need. And so when I hear things about people setting that up in like meal trains, it's, I'm like, wow, that's brilliant. I never would have thought of that. And mm-hmm. I'm behind it now, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's really true. It is hard to know what to ask for when you're in it. I mean, I know I set mm-hmm. up like walks ahead of time and set up, you know, people to come actually physically visit and then, you know, do little chores and that kind of thing, but Yeah, it is a tricky part of it. And then, yeah, once you run out of bandwidth to be able to stop and figure out and ask for help, yeah, what you need and what would be helpful is hard to know. So maybe we need to train our friends. Like part of the development support is to say, can you come to me with suggestions of how you can support me? Or just, you know, if you see me struggling, I need you to come to me and say... I'm going to do X, Y, Z for you. So maybe it's a little bit of like training our support system.
1: I've changed completely as a friend. And I think it's also the time we live in is we're all very cautious. People don't just stop by your house unexpectedly anymore. They don't just show up. Mm -hmm. And I am completely different now. If I know somebody's a new mother, I will be like, hey, this is how I can help you. And even with my friends, I just feel like I'm just a little bit pushier now. It's a whole lot easier to tell somebody, no, I don't need that help. I think than to have to sit there when you're the exhausted one managing everything to then also be in charge of finding what you need from people.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm actually trained as a postpartum doula. And I think one of the pieces of training is that you're the manager of the support system. And I think that's also one of the reasons a postpartum doula can be so incredibly helpful because they're trained to sort of manage your people to support you the way you need. And they're sort of trained to see, okay, this is what you need. And here's what your friends can do for you. So I think, but obviously, you know, not many of us can really feel like we can afford a postpartum doula for a very extended period of time. So you do need yeah, a friend who can help you manage care or just sort of train people somehow to step up and give you the support you need.
1: That's brilliant. I didn't realize that that was part of the training of postpartum doulas. I just thought they were magical human beings that somehow (laughs) made your life (laughs) make sense again.
0: Yes. Well, probably women who are drawn to be postpartum doulas do have like (laughs) instinct. but yes, that is... Part of the, at least part of my training was that that's your job: manage the personalities, you know, manage the tasks. delegate and sort of make sure everything gets done. Yeah, no, that's smart. So I want to shift a little bit. I know your son is only about two and a half, I believe. Is that correct? That is correct.
1: He'll be three in July.
0: Awesome. And so have you started to have any conversations about donor origins and how have those been going?
1: You know, he doesn't really get it yet. I always talk to him. I'm a big talker. So I, and I never wanted it to be a surprise to him. And it was also something... I think I was a little bit unique. I think a lot of moms struggle with the idea, oh, what if this kid isn't mine biologically? But because I was 45 and because I thought my opportunity was over and then suddenly I get to have a baby and carry it, to me, the science and technology has been magical, amazing. And I really want my son to understand that I think he's a miracle. And so that's Mm -hmm. always my conversation with him is... You know, Mommy wanted a baby, and the doctors helped me get a baby, and that was you. And that's about as far as we've gone, really. I've shown him pictures of his donor, but in him, their child pictures, and he doesn't have any concept of what that is.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Cool. And so can you talk a little bit about your experience as a mom that does not have a genetic connection to your child?
1: Yeah, it's weird. And by weird, I mean it's weird how it doesn't matter at all. The kid is so... Clearly, my kid. He looks so much like me. People, unless I tell them that he's donor, it never dawns on them that he's not genetically related to me. And, you know, I, I've heard you talk about that with other people before, and I think it's one of those things where, and I have friends who who struggled with the decision. they've struggled with the communication. For me, it never really mattered. It doesn't matter now. And the fact that he's so my kid, And I'm not not really describing that well. Like it's not just the similarities. It's just that you just don't care. Like you want you wanted to be a mom. It's kind of like like I adopted the baby I got to carry. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it just or I got to carry the baby I adopted. (laughs) You know that might be a better way to put it.
0: Mm -hmm. Cool. Thank you. And do you have any regrets about how your path turned out? Would you have done anything differently, sort of knowing what you know now? I know that the genetics and the person and you know.
1: So some people would say, well, you can't change the time. You wouldn't get the kid that you got without the timing. And I believe beliefs tend to go to a little bit more esoteric that the solar spirit or whatever that was coming was going to be the same regardless of the body that it got into. So Mm -hmm. I'm still a little bit hung up on the idea that I wish I would have been younger. Mm -hmm. I've had some health issues since he was born and we've had some family health issues. And my biggest concern at this point is... You know, being forty six when he was born and then, you know, I'll be well into my sixties when he graduates from high school. And I'm aware of the passage of time in a way that I never was. And like I said, I was healthy, active, I felt great. And I don't know if it was the perfect storm of having some health issues, if the health issues were triggered by having a pregnancy. I don't know any of the answers to that. I just know from where I sit right now. One of my biggest fears is that I'm not going to have enough time with this amazing being Mm -hmm. and I want to have as many years as possible with him.
0: Yeah, I feel that a lot too. I understand that sentiment a lot. Can you talk a little bit about your work and what that's been like and where you're at with that right now?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so um, I worked in the medical device industry in a sales role with spine surgeons. And so before I had a child, I traveled all over the country all over the world. And I would usually go into surgeries when surgeons were using equipment for the first time. And my job would be like, oh, this is how this screw turns here, or teaching the rep about the equipment and answering questions. And so it was a lot of really intense work. And I could get a phone call in the morning and have to be on a plane a couple hours later. Mm-hmm. When I started thinking that I wanted to have a kid, I knew that wasn't going to work. And so I transitioned into, I was still in the same industry but I was in a role where I worked specifically with young surgeons, fellows and residents. I set up training programs. I still traveled, but my travel was all planned and I really had a lot of control over my schedule. Uh, about three months ago, I was laid off. And when I started looking at jobs, aside from the fact that my industry tends to have pretty strong non-competes, every job that I was able to do is about 50% travel. And so it's scary being an only parent and thinking, wow, I can't do what I've been doing to provide for my family. And you know, what am I going to do? And I, like I said, I live in an expensive city. I own my home, but daycare is expensive. Babysitters are expensive. When I travel for work, I'm often paying $150 to $200 a night. And that's a deal.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So all of this stuff just just really adds up. And interestingly enough, <laughs> I was listening to your podcast and I heard your interview with Abby down in Mexico. And it dawned on me that there were other options and it just kind of opened my eyes up to the idea of really shifting gears. So the way I define it right now is I'm in a bit of a career transition, but I'm actually going to go to Mexico for a couple months to give myself. I've rented my house out here, so we're free in that regard, and to give myself some time to interview shift gears if I need to, and maybe we'll stay for a couple years.
0: Awesome. I'm so excited. I know you're headed to close to where I'm at. So we're really excited to have you. Yeah. I think it's just good for people to hear. What was involved for you, do you think, in sort of having the courage to do that sort of shift?
1: You know, it's weird. I don't really have a lot of like things happen for a reason, faith, which is kind of funny. I know a lot of people would be like, wow, it sounds like you do, but I, I really don't. <laughs> I tend to be kind of skeptical. And it was really kind of a perfect storm of events. So right around the same time that I found out... So I was laid off from a company. My company that I had worked for for six and a half years was acquired by a larger one in the industry. And when an acquisition like that happens, you usually have a couple months like, okay, you know your job's in jeopardy, but you don't know for sure if you're going to be one of the ones to go. So it was around August of last year that the acquisition was announced and it was around January that I found out that my job was in jeopardy. Last summer, I was also diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder. And so I was having some chronic pain, some health issues of my own. And like I said, I already had fears about my age, but it was really making me aware of my vulnerability and my mortality. And I also realized that even though I'd always done this really intense work, Physically, I'm not able to do that, at least not right now. I personally believe that I will heal from this disorder and be in a better place. But for right now, it's been a challenge and a readjustment. At the same time in November, my dad and my aunt were both diagnosed with rare, potentially fatal diseases. And it was kind of the one, two, three punch of, you know, life is short and you can keep doing the grind and doing what you think you're supposed to do. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to enjoy your life. It just really occurred to me that we kind of have this this thing, you know, you check all the boxes, you get your job, you do all this stuff. All I really want to do at this point is hang out with my kid and enjoy my life. And I don't want to take another intense job. I don't want to do anything right now that takes away from this beautiful gift that I've been given. And I know that I need to work. But at the same time, all of that coming at the same time made me realize that kind of like, what am I doing this for? Mm -hmm. Does that make
0: sense? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. No, I think that's really beautiful to hear because I think we forget so thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And I'm sorry, it sounds like there's a lot on your plate. So it's also still very admirable that you're, that you're coming here. And I think it's easy to get stuck and think that we can't shift gears and that there's just all these things that feel like they're pulling at you and that make it impossible. And so I think you know having that courage to see that it is possible to unhook from certain things and do something completely different is still really incredible.
1: Well, I'll be honest. I feel so lucky. And I never would have thought this because I always felt like not getting married, like I was missing something. But the one thing I realized is at this point in my life, you know, a lot of my friends are divorced and they're managing their parenting with somebody who's in a different, you know, living in a different household, answering to different people. And when I think about the fact that I have the luxury of I make the decisions for my son and I, I feel like there's so much freedom in our Mm -hmm. situation that I never would have anticipated when I was younger. All I was hung up at 37, 38 was the cost of it. And I never realized the opportunity of being a solo parent. And in some ways, it's really fantastic.
0: Yeah, it is. I think there is a certain amount of it. Yes, that freedom, like I don't have anyone telling me I can't be in Mexico. And that is incredibly liberating. And I see lots of my friends not being able to make those kinds of choices. So it's very true. Yep. So in what ways... Has being a mother been different than you expected? <laughs>
1: first of all, I think every new parent is blown away by how hard it is. So I don't think that's universal or I don't think that's, you know, just being a single mother. I have a lot of friends who ironically right around the same time became first time parents. Most of them partnered a few single. And I think parenting is just, you do know, it's hard. You hear that all the time, but until you actually cross the Rubicon and how hard it is, I don't think you can fathom (laughs) just how intense it is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As a single mother, I think it boils down to the stuff that we were talking about before is just, it's always on you. And you really reach a point where the only time you get a break is if you're willing and you have the resources to hire a break. Mm
0: -hmm. And I think
1: that just the constantness of it and the, you know, my kid's an early riser. And so I don't think I've slept until six in three
0: years. I hear (laughs) you. So what advice would you give to a woman who was trying to decide whether or not to become a single mom? You know, it's funny that's changed. In the beginning,
1: I would have been like, yeah, you know, I, I would have thought about all of the, um, you know, make sure you have the money, make sure you have the resources, do this, do that. Actually, I've been listening to your podcast. A lot of the moms who were just a lot more committed to it when they were younger. One of the things they mention is like, you can always find the partner later. For some mm-hmm. reason, for me, I just could not take those two and put them out of order. And so I say separate it. If you want to be a mom, become a mom. You know, do it. Figure out what works for you. Figure out whether you know the the biology. However, I read all these books. So when I got to that point, like I was telling you about at forty five, I then, as I was going to the doctors, I kept reading all these books about women that had chosen not to be parents. I really wanted to get on that train. Like I was trying so hard. I read a bunch of books about that. I read a couple books about single moms. And so I think if you feel that way, don't wait till you're forty five to explore it. Do it when you're younger and and just do it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that uncoupling of being a mother and partnering to me is. So liberating. And I wish that it was more of a plan A for women or like just something people considered as like regular course of events that like, oh, I could have the baby first or have the baby without the partner and that they they're not tied together. Cause to me, yeah, it's been an incredible journey being a single mom and definitely really hard. But I for me, I find I think the advantages to doing it alone outweigh sort of the partnership and baby together. Obviously, I don't know the opposite, but It feels like it's been working out really well. And I think it would be nice if it was a consideration that was a normal consideration for women to decide whether or not to do the baby without the partner.
1: Yep, I couldn't agree more. And the other thing too, is I think one thing you don't realize when you're in the thinking stage is you've got this whole network of those of us that have gone before. And it's funny because I've become a little bit of a spokesperson in my own world because now I'm the lady that went off and had a baby by herself. And so whenever somebody else is thinking about it, they're like, would you mind talking to my friend? i was, like, of course, I'd love to talk to your friend. And so I think one of the things that moms need to realize is there's now a whole bunch of us that have done this and we can help you figure out how to get here. I'm with you. I wish that I had thought of it as a plan A. It's just I think it's just the time when we grew up and the technology and everything kind of creating this perfect storm. And so I really hope going forward that there's, you know, future moms that don't see it as a last resort, but see it as one of their choices.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We can be on the crusade together. <laughs> Yes. So speaking sort of partnership. So have you dated at all since you had your child? And what are sort of your feelings about dating or relationships now that you have a kid?
1: <laughs> so remember, I told you when I was thirty-seven or thirty-eight, I decided I was going to double down and, and really date a lot. I don't really mm-hmm. like dating. I'm a pretty introverted person, and so and I work. Like I said, I'm in sales. So to me, dating was always just more work. Like, oh, I have to go meet new people and impress them. And I've never been one of those people that looks at dating as something fun to do. If I want to do something fun, I want to hang out with my friends or read a book. So I felt like that 7 37, 38, 45... I really tried hard to date. I got on all the sites that go out with people I didn't know. I was open, open, open. And so when I first decided to have a baby on my own, I was actually colossally just relieved to not have to date. And then Mm. I had a lot of fun when I was pregnant because people would always ask me about my partner. And it was fun to be like, no, I did this on my own. Ha ha. Blast with that. I was still traveling a lot. And it was just fun to kind of freak people out (laughs) Mm -hmm. since i've had him every once in a while i'll get like a little oh i'm kind of lonely i should meet somebody and now it's so easy you know you have your phone you're up half the time anyway you download some app and you can swipe and look at guys and think about you know what i want to date and so i've gone out on a couple of dates with one guy that i met on a dating app and he was really nice guy timing wasn't really right what i realized he was actually getting ready to move overseas So we went out a couple of times and what I realized also was that all of the stuff going along with being a mom, you know, like even if I wanted to date, getting dressed up, scheduling stuff, making time, hiring babysitters, it all just seemed a lot of work. I anticipate that at some point, maybe I might want to date. My son, like I said, he's going to be three in July. I hear from parents that once they get to be four, five, and six, it's not quite as intense. And so I feel like maybe then, now I'm a lot more interested in the idea of meeting somebody else who has kids, maybe a divorced dad or a single dad. But I also feel like I love the synergy of me and my son. And like I said, my favorite things to do are read and cook and hang out with my friends. So dating's not a big priority to me. And I don't know if it ever will be again.
0: Mm, yeah.
1: I have my kid now. I don't feel like I need to look for my missing piece. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I think many women feel similarly. But I think when you're on the other side and you're still thinking and trying it, hearing that sentiment sounds so foreign and bizarre. But I think it's very common.
1: You're 100% correct. I think if I was able to talk to, you know, pre-mom me, it would have been a Foreign concept to me too. And and like I said, I don't know if it's just the time that we live in that you, you know, it's first comes love, then comes marriage and all that stuff. But yeah, what I realized in hindsight, and now I look back and I think about it, I always had this fantasy of marriage and a partnership, but I always really knew that I wanted the kid. Like the partner never had a clear definition. Like I don't know how to explain this, but when I was little, like I could see my future, I could see my family the partner was kind of amorphous. It it wasn't really clearly defined, but the kid was. Mm -hmm. I needed that kid.
0: I know you mentioned that I think your father and cousin are ill. Have you had a lot of family support? And what would you say to women who maybe don't have a lot of family support about whether or not they can handle being a single mom?
1: Yeah, that's a tough one. I don't have a lot of family support. So I live in Colorado. My dad did live here. Part of what's going on with his health and wellness is he's actually got a progressive neurodegenerative disorder that has a dementia component. And ironically, he's been deteriorating almost in complete conjunction from when my son was born. And I didn't mm-hmm. really realize it because even though we live in the same town, I was just thinking like, why aren't you helping anymore? I don't understand. I'm kind of angry about that. So I didn't even realize that there was something going on. It's my aunt that's sick and my cousin, her daughter, who's my age, does live about three hours from me. And so she helps when she can. But again, you know, when people don't live in the same town. So the short answer to your question is no, I haven't had a lot of family support, mostly because my family's just not here. And one of the things that I really struggle with in the support question is I think everybody's intentions are really good. You know, that everybody, I want to help you, I want to help you, but we all live in these really intense scenarios. And then like I said, we don't just show up at each other's houses anymore to help out. We don't live down the block from each other. I mean, even some of my good friends in town live 30, 40 minutes away. And with traffic, it can be more. But I also know friends whose moms have helped out a lot. Like they they live close. I remember hearing, I always get jealous. I'll be on an airplane and I meet somebody and they're like, oh, my daughter had babies. So we moved across the country so we could help out. And I'm like, man, that would be awesome. I would love that. Mm-hmm. But I think the thing is, is that it's not necessarily a build it and they will come thing because like we mentioned, when you're in the thick of it, you can't necessarily build it. But I think it goes back to the same thing. If this is something you want to do and you don't have the family, then you create the family that you need. You create the support system. One of the most beautiful things that my family or my friends and I've done is we created a new org. It's an amalgamation of friends and cousins <laughs> because I want my son to feel like he has a big family, even if we don't have a big mm. family. So we have presents (laughs) and we try to spend holidays together and make sure that they have that same consistency that you would get from a family. My family was small to begin with. So there's just not, and like I said, we all live in different places. So I knew going down this path that that wasn't going to be my support system. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Cool. I think that's just nice for people to hear because I can't tell you the number of people who tell me they can't do it because they don't have family help. And I'm similar to you without a lot of family help. And, you know, you figure it out. It may be more expensive because you have to pay for a lot of the help. Yep. But it's still figure outable, one of my favorite phrases. <laughs> yep.
1: <laughs>
0: so, well,
1: the millennials are kind of onto something with their like cohabitating idea. Like, I've talked to a couple other single moms about the idea of, you know, like, what if we could find a big house that had two master suites that was set up for more of this like co living? And Mm -hmm. I think that in the future, as this is more common, there's going to be more ability to create support systems too. At least I hope so.
0: Yeah. I mean, I know that. So my house in Oakland was quite big and I had at least one other single mom and her kid move in and it was amazing. And I did sort of, you know, toy with that idea of having another single mom many, many times. And I have another friend who there's a bunch of co-housing sort of communities being set up where you have a common yard, Mm -hmm. but you each have your own home, but there's a certain amount that's kind of common and you move into them with the intentionality of being connected to each other. Yep. And I think, yeah, it would be amazing to build something like that. Or yeah, you need your own space to kind of escape to, but being able to share the load and cohab. I'm someone who's always had roommates, so I like that, but I know a lot of people that feels very foreign. but mm-hmm. It is something that continues to evolve because I think in general, we're just sort of pushing the envelope of what the definition of family is. And the more and more we can do that, the more all these different interesting things that we can create can come about. Totally. I couldn't agree more. So we talked about this a little bit, but I wanted to just circle back because it's one of my questions that I just feel very committed to. So any advice you would give to a woman who was on the precipice of sort of having to decide whether or not to go forward using donor eggs or donor embryos.
1: Talking to a therapist is a good idea. A couple of things that my therapist pointed out, which I hadn't really thought about. Like I said, I wasn't seeing a therapist around this idea. This was just the FDA clearance thing. But we talked through my family history. And in comparing the two, there was a lot of mental health issues in my family history. And the idea of not giving some of that to my son, I mean, there's always the question of nature versus nurture. So he's obviously gotta deal with a certain amount of my personal crazy. <laughs> but the idea of giving him a little bit more of a blank slate was somewhat appealing to me. And we also know the history of the the technology comes from the horses and the broodmares, and the brood is actually giving, you know, characteristics to the the embryo that's being carried. And so understanding that I feel like there's so much room for this child to be of you whether mm-hmm. it's the biology whether it's the gestation whether it's the day-to-day stuff but I do know some people struggle with that and I feel like I can't I honestly can't really understand their struggle because I didn't I didn't feel that way. Mm-hmm. So I think if a mom is having a tough time and they were really attached to the idea that the baby should be genetically theirs then talk to other moms, talk to therapists, and and work through that. Because I think if you have the strong desire where you're thinking about doing this on your own, that shouldn't be what keeps you from doing it. Mm -hmm. It becomes such a non-issue when your baby's
0: here. Right. I completely agree. So what do you love most about being a mother? Mm -hmm. My kid's hilarious.
1: He is (laughs) so funny. And I just I cannot imagine what my days would be like without him. I mm-hmm. love watching him develop. I love that he loves me. He it's everything that I hope for and more in that mm-hmm. dynamic. It's so tangible and it's so real. And I love I love the rawness and the intimacy because I've been single a lot. I haven't had a lot of that day to day intimacy with somebody, and I actually really do enjoy that with my son.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, I hope that doesn't sound weird.
0: <laughs> no, I get it. I mean, I feel like my kid and. In- like incredibly in sync. Yeah. I mean, I think the way of saying that would be like the intimacy, but yeah, it's just he and I. And we, like the other day we went to the pool and he just was so lovely and it was just so fun to hang out with him. And I was like, this is really yeah. cool. Like we just had this one sort of, you know, oftentimes they can be annoying and whine or something comes up or they don't want to do this or that. And we just had this day of like, it was just, all of it was just so fun and he was so good. And I was just like, oh, hes I love having my little companion. He's a lot of fun. Yeah. Plus it's funny. Like even though we're totally in the terrible twos and it's hard. One of the things that's really fun about a
1: temper tantrum is you're like, you know what? I get it. Like if I weren't an adult, that's exactly how I'd want to behave about not getting my way too. I get it kid.
0: (laughs) That's funny. So what do you like least about being a mother?
1: I think the hardest part is the evenings, the tiredness. It's so hard after a day of work and then getting home and doing dinner. And they're kind of at the end of their rope too. And I just find the nights and the evenings aren't as precious as I'd like them to be. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I'm just sitting there waiting for him to go to sleep because I can't wait to go to sleep myself. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if that's saying that what I like least is the tiredness, the constantness. But for me, that kind of witching hour evening is sort of the worst.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any other advice or anything else you'd like to add before we close up?
1: Reach out. When you're thinking about this, it's so easy. And I think also, you know, a lot of women who do this, they're professional women, they're used to managing things on their own. They're used to trying to, Think through everything and expect, you know, I'm going to figure this out. First of all, once you go down this path, there's so many unknowns. You can't anticipate anything. You got to learn to just surf and go with the journey. And then second of all, talk to us that have done it. Like there's so much, there's so much resource available. There's so much, there's so many things that you need to figure out that you don't even know you need to figure out to talk to the people that have gone before and let them... And I also think there's a real reality that coupled people don't get some of the stuff that you need as a single person. They get it abstractly, but they don't necessarily get it in the really clear how I need to help myself get this way. And Mm -hmm. so talking to other single moms and building a support network... And that was something I kind of did wrong was in the beginning, there's a big SMC group in Colorado, but I just happened to have a lot of friends that were having babies at the same time. And what I found was that about a year in, our needs were different. And it was when I started connecting with more single moms that I didn't feel quite as alone. I felt like, oh, yeah, these people get me. They get where my journey is and where my challenges are in a way that your coupled friends just can't.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's very true. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really lovely talking to you. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it as well, Sarah. Thanks. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks for listening to today's show. Before we go, I wanted to just give you some more details about my tribe membership because the pricing will be changing soon. So right now I'm recruiting for my tribe signature level support groups. I have three groups, a pregnant and solo, a thinkers triers and an egg donor support group. So what do you get in a tribe signature level support group? So first of all, you get weekly video support group calls with all of the women in your group. And there's no more of a maximum of 10 women in any of those groups. And we meet on Zoom, and it's an hour to an hour and a half long. We talk about what's up for you and dive into a topic that feels of interest to everyone. It's really a way to be seen in your journey, process through all the emotional ups and downs, and get some practical advice I think listening to other women who are at different stages than you is an invaluable to get information and shortcut the process of getting pregnant by just hearing how it's going for everyone else. You also get a private classroom with those women on my community forum so that you guys can have private conversations about what's going on with you guys. And you get access to all my content. So I have a ton of content that I've created with worksheets, a lot of done for you research, a lot of self-study on the emotional aspects of this journey that you can read through and reflect. And finally, you get to be on my broader community forum with all the women in all the groups. So the price for that right now is only $59 a month, but it's going to be going up on April 30th. So if you want to be a founding member and get the founding member pricing, please go to my website, motherhoodreimagine.com and follow the link to the membership site and sign up you can use the coupon code founder monthly which is with a capital f or founder six and that's with a lowercase f that will give you the discount those two different codes are for whether you decide you want to pay monthly or whether you want to pay for six months at a time and get an even lower rate and i created a video in my facebook group of the membership platform so you can see all the content and see what it would look like to join and get a sense of everything that's included. So I hope you'll join me and please feel free to reach out to me anytime with questions. We can jump on a call if you'd like, or you can shoot me an email at Sarah at motherhood reimagined and we can talk about whether or not it's a good fit for you. And finally, if a group doesn't sound like what you want, you can work with me as a tribe VIP member that's private coaching with me. You get six 30 minute calls per month And unlimited voicemail access to me as well as all my content on my tribe membership and the community forum so you can sign up for that on my website as well that link is just going live now it's a new program so don't miss your chance I'll only be taking a handful of people I'm also still looking for more guests so please head on over to my webpage and sign up to be a guest if you're interested Or if you're an expert and you'd like to talk to us, we'd love to hear from you. Or if you have any suggestions about people I should interview, please pop on over to my Facebook group or shoot me an email at sarah at motherhoodreimagined.com. Thanks for joining me today. I look forward to being with you next week. Take care.